Uh, I've just got a couple of housekeeping matters, and I thought, uh, given the size of the crowd, this morning's not a bad time to do this. Um, You may or may not be aware of this. We have an electrical substation that's been on this property since the time that this church building was built. Uh, It's owned um, by um, Energy Australia, but for about the last four years, it's been completely vacant, and there's nothing in it at all. Uh, We've been in conversations with them about what they intend to do with that, and we found out this week, unbeknownst to us, they've actually sold it. Um, And that block has been bought... Um, actually by McDonald's, to our surprise. And the plan at the moment is that actually a three-storey structure, it's not going to be any larger than the footprint that's there. It'll have uh, a drive-through facility at the bottom, there'll be a kitchen on the second level, and on the third level, it's a child's play centre, um, which apparently we'll be able to use. Um, of course, it's not true, is it? It's uh, April Fool's, right? Okay. Um, It'd be good if it was true. Um, <laughs> seriously, that does not deserve any applause at all. Um, um, well, look, it is April Fool's Day, correct? Um, and so, uh, if you're in any doubt about that, um, it is, however, the case that Daniel Leach is not with us this morning, so hence part of the reason why there's no kids' program and those things. But actually, there's actually another reason um, that he's not here this morning. In fact, he won't be here for the next two months. Uh, he's asked uh, for some leave. Um, which is exciting. He's just been accepted as the principal dancer for Australian ballet in their touring company, (laughs) which is is phenomenal, right? Which is good. Now, you may be surprised at that, um, but if you had been looking at him lately and noticed that he was looking particularly trim and that his pants were looking particularly tight and short, well, if you want to see him in Leotard, Glen Street Theatre over the next few weeks and then touring nationally... um, Well, of course, that's not true either, is it? It's... it's, uh, April Fool's Day is actually one of my favourite days, Uh, a little bit further down the list than actually uh, Easter Sunday is, but I've got to say, it's also the day that I distrust everything that is said to me before lunchtime. I I just, I know that people are out uh, to fool me, in fact, because I'm pretty keen on fooling other people, I'm wary of every conversation, particularly Paul Simmons, if he rings me or anyone that knows him calls me, I know it's going to be an April Fool's joke. Uh, too many people out for revenge. Now, if you're like me, that means that you come to a day like today and you are going to be distrusting uh, everything you hear. And so perhaps preaching is a waste of time on April Fool's Day. Um, Especially when the story that we're considering starts like this. Do you remember on Friday when we talked about an execution of Jesus and we talked about a spear in the side and blood and water flowing and we talked about a body being removed and placed in a tomb and do you remember the dead corpse? Well, it's Sunday and he's alive and it sounds like April Fool's, doesn't it? It sounds like some kind of joke and perhaps rightly you sit there thinking, like many in our culture think, do you think that I'm some kind of fool that would be so drawn into a prank like that? Of course, people do think that Christians are foolish for believing in Jesus and particularly foolish for believing in the absurd idea of the resurrection. Dead is dead, isn't it? Is this some kind of joke? Is it a prank that gullible people have believed for the last 2,000 years? Well, this morning my objective is to get us to think about how logical the resurrection is, that Christianity isn't some kind of ship of fools. 
I want you to see not only that it's logical, but also that it's relational. That is, that it's not just this historical event for way back then, but there's something about it that is deeply personal and relevant. It's logical and it's relational. The the hardest part, I think, for the sceptical hearer of this idea is, uh, is that logical hurdle of believing that something that's dead can come back to life. And what sits behind that kind of idea has a sense of rationality to it. It's based on the presupposition that miracles don't happen, that dead people stay dead. And see, we tend to think that we live in a world that's a closed system. The truth is observable, it's repeatable, it's predictable. And if you've got that kind of belief, then you won't just struggle with the idea of Jesus' resurrection. You'll struggle and dismiss all of the miracles that get attributed to Jesus. I mean, we just heard Peter talking about some of those, of witnessing 5,000 people fed with meagre rations, of Jesus walking on water that for anyone else would see them plummet beneath its surface. We saw him, we heard of Jesus, if you were to read through the Gospels, taking water and transferring it into wine. If you were reading through John's Gospel, you would have heard the story of him taking a dead man from a tomb and calling him out by name when he says, Lazarus, and out he comes, all draped in his grave clothes. But I get it. That if you don't believe that there's a God in the system, then you're not going to believe that God could step into the system and change things or augment things. Now, I want to make the obvious comment that that is not what Christians believe. We believe that there is a powerful, creative and loving God who's not bound inside the system that he made. In fact, he breaks in. But suppose you are sceptical and that there is no God and the miracles are not possible. And then I'd want to say to you that the logic of the Easter event actually now sits on you to think about what happened. And particularly what happened after the Easter event with the the creation of the church and all the things that took place in the lives of those people who said that the Easter event took place. How do you account for all that happened? One way of explaining this might sound something like this, where you say, well, the events uh, way back then happened at a time where people didn't uh, know what we know. They were into supernatural things far more susceptible than we are, more open to it. And they believed that the story of the resurrection of Jesus because they believed that resurrections were possible. It was part of their kind of thinking and their idea, their background, the teachings that they'd absorbed. But more than that, they also wanted it to be true. For those first and closest followers of Jesus, they believed that he was the Messiah. As we heard from Peter, they dropped everything to follow him. They'd given their lives to it, and so they had a lot invested in it being true. And so that idea then, perhaps following on from his death, they still feel his presence. They have him living on in their heads. They can remember the kinds of things that he said. They can recall the kind of things that they recall him doing. Perhaps even... They remember times where he perhaps visited them in their dreams and it seems so real to them. And over time, 
Those feelings developed into stories that he had really been raised from the dead. And then many, many years later, gospel accounts get written like Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and they record and they play on those ideas that have circled around and now they get written down and suggested as historical events and a historical resurrection. Tim Keller in one of his books posits that kind of a thought. The way we might dismiss it as kind of just a wishful thinking. We want him to be resurrected and alive. And he says it sounds plausible to the average contemporary person, but only because we ignore the historical and cultural context. That actually if you were to go back and think about what was believed and understood and known at the time of Jesus' resurrection, then you wouldn't posit those kind of answers. See, it's worth knowing that long before the Gospels were written, the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus was well attested to. The people believed it. Paul, in fact, is the first one to write about it that we have recorded in Scripture. He writes an open letter to a church in Corinth. And in that letter, he says something astonishing. And it's written about 15, maybe 20 years after the events of Jesus' death. And he says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have died. Now, what do you notice when Paul writes this? This is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 6, if you want to check it up. He asserts that this was an historical event. The third day this took place. After the events of the Friday, this resurrection event took place. Real time, real real, real space time. And then he lists off the eyewitnesses that were there. And so if you doubt it, go and talk to them. Oh, most of them are still alive, of the 12 that were there. Go and ask and see, but not just the 12, there were many. In fact, on one occasion, 500 people bore witness to the living, resurrected Jesus. And if you doubt what I'm saying to you as I write this letter to this church, go and ask them. And now you wouldn't do that if it were not true. But then he also promotes the accuracy of this oral transmission because part of what people will say is, look, this got passed on and people just wanted to believe that it was true and a little bit kind of like it moves over time and it's just kind of all lost in translation, isn't it? And yet what he says is what I passed on to you was of first importance. What I received, I passed on without augmentation. And a whole lot of scholarship in recent years has been invested in that idea of how accurate can you get oral translation in, transmission in an oral culture. And when the scholars look into that, they discover something amazing, which is you get incredible accuracy. Because the cultures are so based in being able to pass on their histories orally, they're very good at that. And in fact, they're very, very particular about passing it on without error and omission. N.T. Wright Wright wrote an important book a number of years ago on the resurrection and he spends a lot of time investigating the transmission of oral oral transmission and how reliable it can be. And it is astonishing how important it was for these cultures. And so the delay in the time of the events and the 15 years to uh, to Paul and his writings and then to however many decades transpire before the Gospels get written shouldn't concern us in a culture that wants to preserve these incredible true stories. It's also important to know that at the time of the resurrection, the belief in 
the idea of an individual resurrection was not at all believed by people. There was a Jewish understanding that there would be a resurrection of all people at the end of history. But there's no thought in Jewish history of an individual in mid-history being resurrected. That whole idea would just be, well, people are still dying and being born and this is not the end and the culmination of things. There's no resurrection until there's the resurrection of all. And yet, here comes this teaching about a man who has died being resurrected to life again outside of the broader belief systems that existed in the area around them. And yet, what you discover is that those first followers of Jesus consistently believed that the man who was buried was the one who was raised. And they attended to that truth with such conviction that when, as we heard before, they were threatened to silence, they refused. When it cost them their lives, they went to their deaths. Now, you might live for a lie, but to die for a lie is another thing. And yet that is what we see, that they will proclaim this on their dying breaths. And of course, the other thing that you discover that you've got to think about and somehow explain is how if this didn't happen, if the body was there or if it was stolen or all the things that we want to kind of dismiss about the resurrection in our sceptical minds, if it didn't happen, then why did the church happen? Why did people like Peter, who were so fearful, change? And why did thousands respond? And why, as you read through the book of Acts, do you get this explosive force that not just permeates first century Palestine, but off it goes? Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So that two millennia later, we still see the reverberations of that. What, what ignited that if it was a lie? How do you explain that away? And then when you come to the text that we had read for us this morning already, you see that there's a logic in the way in which this story gets told, and it's powerful. That early on the first day of that week, a woman ventures through the darkness. It's a woman that we know. We talked about her a little bit this morning at the sunrise service, if you were there. Her name is Mary Magdalene. In Luke chapter 8... It records that there was a time in Mary Magdalene's life where she was afflicted by seven demons and she met Jesus and her life was entirely transformed because of the encounter. Now, whatever you want to make of demon possession, when the Bible records that kind of thing in others, you see people who are terribly afflicted. People understand it in the community around them as a kind of madness. You think of the demoniac that is chained in the Decapolis living amongst the tombs, naked, a danger to himself and to others. This woman, perhaps similarly affected, has her life changed. She moves from social ostracism to being one of the close followers of Jesus. She's standing there with the other women that day and the disciple John when Jesus dies. She's right there at the foot of the cross in John chapter 19, verse 25. And on the morning of the resurrection... John records for us that it's Mary who goes there first. And when she goes to the tomb, she discovers that the entrance to the tomb has been left open. Her intention is to go there, we discover elsewhere, to take care of his body because it's been such a rush on the Friday. And she wants to do something for Jesus. What she expects to be able to do with the 
tomb closed up as it should have been is unknown to us. But when she gets there, God has orchestrated things so that she can see that the tomb has been left open and that access is available. But she doesn't go in. She sees that and her immediate assumption is that something terrible has happened. Not only has Jesus died, but now his, his body is gone. And so she sets off running. She runs from the tomb back to the disciples, to Simon and to the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And most people assume that is the Apostle John. And she says to them, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. But Jesus is very much dead to Mary, who's the first witness of these events. And it's been often made as a point that if you were going to make this story up, there is no way that you would put a first century woman as the first witness to these events. They weren't able to bring testimony into a court. And so what sense is there in bringing this kind of testimony unless it was the case that the first person there was indeed this woman? And a woman with a background that she had and all of that, here is this witness and she comes and she can't quite put it together. And then we discover that Peter and John start for the tomb, the foot race as mentioned before. And when they arrive there, it's John who arrives there first. And it's really interesting the way that this is recorded for us in the text. If you've got your Bibles, you can have a look at John chapter 20 and verse 5. It says that John bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. The, the idea of looking and seeing is a big deal in this chapter. In fact, the, the word for looking or seeing it gets used uh, at least three or four times, and there's three different words that are used. The, the, the word here is just the word to, to look, to blepo, just to look in and see. And that's what John does. Notice in verse 6, Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb and he saw, he looked, and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now that, that's a different word there. It's the word thereo. It, it, it's a word that means to analyse and to, to investigate. It's the same word that we use for the word theatre or the word to theorise. He goes in and he sees not an empty tomb. He sees a nearly empty tomb. He sees linen lying there and he's analysing the situation. He's trying to get to the logic of these events because there's a, there's a logic to this. It's not irrational belief that's coming in. He sees the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw, it's a different word again. This time it's the word for perceiving deeply. He saw and he believed. It goes on to say that they hadn't perceived everything. They, they still didn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But then these disciples went back to where that they were staying. Mary comes to the tomb. The stone's been moved away. The logic in our mind says, oh, was it moved to let Jesus out? But that's not the point. The stone has been moved to let the others in. D don't be mistaken into thinking that it was moved for Jesus' need. As you read through the passage, you discover not only that Jesus can pass through grave clothes... Later on, he'll pass through locked doors and appear in the presence of his disciples. The stone is not an impediment to Jesus' resurrection. 
He's just defeated death and been raised back to life. He's outside the tomb. But we've got to get people inside the tomb so that they can see that the tomb is empty. And so the, tomb, the stone is moved away to let the witnesses in. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a desire to go inside an empty tomb. But that morning, the desire was strong. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going and doing a tour through Israel. And we went to a place that's called the Garden Tomb. And they've got a tomb in a garden outside of Jerusalem. Whether it's the tomb that Jesus was in, unknown. But there's the tomb that's there. And a couple of us were talking as we were arriving at that place. And a few of us decided that we didn't want to go inside. And others went in and they told us that on the door, as you come out of the tomb, there's a sign that says, he is not here, for he has risen. And you kind of go, duh, right? But it's true, isn't it? If you went to that garden tomb today and you walked in and said, I'm going in there because I want to see what's in there, and you were expecting to see bones or anything, Well, it's not the case. Part of the reason why we thought it would be good not to go in is because we have this conviction that Jesus isn't there. It might not be his tomb in the first place. But on that morning, they want to go in and see what's in the tomb. It's empty. Astonishingly, it's empty. And Peter and John and very soon Mary herself will come to the conclusion, they will see and believe that Jesus Christ is alive. Despite their background, despite what their culture says, they believe him to be alive, resurrected and alive. They've seen him raise Lazarus. They've seen him raise others. They know him to have great power. But they look in there and they see something that convinces them that Jesus Christ is alive. And out of the darkness of Friday and the pitch black of death, they see light has emerged. But what do they see? As I read through a moment ago, did you, not only do you get this idea that they're looking and then analysing and then deeply perceiving, but there seems to be a lot of detail about the linen, doesn't there? I mean, there's not a lot of detail about the foot race or the rock or all the other things, but there's a lot of detail about the linen, isn't there? They see the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Why is all that important? Well, because if the theory was that someone had stolen the body, why would they have unwrapped it? If people, Romans, come and decided they were going to take it away, for what purpose? Because they actually would want to show that Jesus was dead and there. But suppose they, for some reason, wanted to steal it. Why would they unwrap the body and leave the clothes there? They'd just pick it all up and go, wouldn't they? Especially because there's actually costly spices that are there and, and even just kind of handling a dead body. You'd rather it be wrapped than unwrapped. But what if it was the disciples who wanted to steal his body in order to tell everybody else that it had been, uh, it had been resurrected, that they were actually lying about, they stole it? The very last thing they would do is dishonour the body by unwrapping it. But they go in and see the linen lying there. But it's not just that it's lying there. It's still there. When Lazarus is raised to life, it's draped all over him. They've got to tell him to take it off. When the, the widow's son at Nain, he's still wrapped up in the stuff. But Jesus' linen, it's described to us as if it is just fallen, as Jesus' body has dematerialized within it. It's passed right through it, like it's going to pass right through the door later on. 
And the practice in that day that bodies would be wrapped up, usually with their arms crossed around their torso, and they'd be wrapped up to about shoulder height. It didn't go right the way up to the head. They weren't fully kind of, you know, mummified, but just wrapped to the shoulders. And then their heads were wrapped in a turban, and the best understanding is probably their faces were actually exposed. That's why when the widow's son is raised, he's able to speak. He's not kind of muffled and covered. And the headcloth is exactly in the position that you could imagine, separate from the rest of the cloth, where Jesus has risen through all of it. They don't see an empty tomb. They go in and they look at the logic and they see a nearly empty tomb and it is the grave clothes in their position that convince them. And they leave there seeing, perceiving and believing that the best, most logical explanation is that a resurrection event has taken place. And if we sit here this morning and we say, April Fool's, then how else are you going to explain it? Because it's not just that. The eyewitnesses, the resurrection events that follow on from this. How do we explain the birth of the church and all of those things that convinced not gullible people, but people who came and saw and reported what was there. And they come to the conviction that Jesus is alive. Kind of want to almost imagine what Peter and John were saying as they bolted back to the rest of the disciples. If you could get inside their heads, were they starting to piece together the implications of what it means if the one that they followed who died and was buried is actually alive? What does that mean now? Kent Hughes, who's an American preacher and commentator, he he writes this list through, and I just read it this week, and I was thinking, that's that's a good thing to reflect on. A living Christ is an all-powerful Christ. A living Christ is a present Christ. It means that it's not historic way back then, but something that's just as relevant today as it was two millennia ago. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life now. We'll come and think about this in two seconds' time. But he's also a Christ who gives us life in all eternity. If he can be resurrected to a life without ending, his promise is that he is the first fruits of the resurrection and all who follow on. Enjoy that same quality of resurrection. A resurrection not only to life now to be enjoyed, but life in all eternity. A living Christ is a Christ who gives victory in the midst of what looks like incredible defeat. We see the one who has the power over sin and death. It could not hold him. And he bursts forward out of the tomb. There's a logic to the resurrection. But not only is it logical, it's relational. It's for real people, and it's real people who see him. See, when you look at the next scene, the scene that Pam read for us, that comes in verse 11 through 18, you need to ask yourself the question, why does Jesus go on and reveal himself to Mary the way that he does? It's an incredibly beautiful scene. Peter and John, they've seen, they've put it together. They don't seem to have told Mary, though. And they've bolted. And she's still sitting there. The body's gone and what has happened? And look at her, she's crying outside the tomb. And can't you feel for her? And as she wept, we're told that she bent over and she looks into the tomb. 
But when she looks into the tomb, the scene has changed. It's been added to. There are now two angels in white. One is seated where Jesus' body had been and the other is at the head. One is at the head and one is at the foot. And they ask her a question, which seems on first reading terribly insensitive. And you wonder, are angels so lost to human emotions? And they say to her, woman, why are you crying? Isn't it obvious? But of course, from the perspective of the angels, this is not a day for tears. Jesus is alive. But for Mary, it's so solemn. But from their perspective, they're sitting giving testimony to the fact that the one who has come has been raised to life again. This is a day of great jubilation. Why, Mary, why are you crying? And she tells them, taken away my Lord. Don't know where they've put him. And then she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't see Jesus. Because she's come looking for a corpse and so she she sees someone standing there. It's unrecognisable to her because she was expecting someone dead. That's the relationship for Mary from now on, isn't it? She watched him die on Friday. If there's any relationship for Christ and I, it's going to be a, I'm going to be mourning him. I'll be visiting his grave. I'll be putting out the flowers. I'll be remembering the loss and the absence. So she doesn't recognise Jesus. This one's alive. And so he asks her some questions. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? She thinks that he's a gardener. And she says, if you've carried him away, would you tell me where you've put him? It's one of the thoughts that will go on in other minds. Has the gardener stolen it? Has the Roman soldier stolen it? The disciples stolen it? Where have you put him? Just give us the body so I can take care of him. I want to do something. The relationship is going to be me to Jesus. He can't do anything, but I'll do, I'll do what I can do. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, and it goes full circle. She goes from ignorance to understanding. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, teacher. I thought you were dead. And now she's being schooled and she grabs on to Jesus. She doesn't want to let this life that she thought was lost to her go. And can't you understand that? But look what Jesus says to her. Don't hold on to me. Let go. Let go because there is more to come. There is more in this relationship than me even being alive and in your presence. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and to tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. See, what Jesus is saying to this woman that day is, you know me and you want to hold on. You thought that I was dead and you know me to be the one who took you from sin and death and gave you life. But I want to tell you that there's more. I have not yet ascended to my father, but not just my father. He looks at Mary and says, your father. To my God and to your God. Mary, do you know what this resurrection event means? If you want to hold on to me living outside the tomb, let go because it's better. More to come. Jesus is engaged in an identity formation project for Mary. He wants her to know that she and all who follow in him have received forgiveness and life. There'll be an outpouring of his spirit and God will dwell with her 
and with any who call upon his name, that they might call God their Father. Not friend, not teacher, but Dad. John sets up this understanding about who God is really early on in chapter 3 and says, God is this God who so loves this world that he sends his Son so that all who believe in him might not perish but receive eternal life, might receive him. Resurrected Jesus. It tells us that you are loved by God. In John chapter 10, it reminds us that you are shepherded by God. In John chapter 13, that you are forgiven and washed by this same one. And astonishingly, in John chapter 20, it tells you that you are God's child. Irrespective of the way you think about yourself, or your past, or the things that plagued you, your deep regrets, whether you feel unloved or left behind or deeply alone, cloaked in darkness... He comes and he says, God, my God, is your God. And he's good and perfect. Or is he dead to you? Have you come looking at the tomb for a dead Jesus trapped? A historical Jesus that's distant. John chapter 20 is a great wake up to us on Easter Sunday. Because we discover in Mary that he is up close and personal. He's relational. And there's something deeply logical about believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's hard to find. In fact, you will not find an alternative explanation to the events of history. This Easter, do you know that Jesus is alive? That it makes perfect sense and that it means that relationship is real with him? that he's alive and is your identity transformed in the knowing of that truth that Christ is risen that he's risen indeed let's pray gracious heavenly father the first arrivers to your tomb saw and believed and it transformed their lives help us today to see, to theorise, to investigate and analyse, to see the logic and to see the relationship on offer and come to the Father. We thank you for the truth and the logic of the relationship that is offered to us through the resurrected Christ alone. And we gather this day praising his name. For those of us, Lord, that find it foolish hard to hear or remain sceptical. Help us as we seek to explain those events that took place that first Easter morning and help us not to rest until we find our rest in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.